Welcome back to the Disruptors Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Johnson. Many of the students in my class at Kellogg come from the world of big consulting, but have been bitten while they're there by the startup bug. But how do you successfully leave the relatively stable, comfortable, prestigious walls of corporate America and successfully launch a new venture? Uh, My guest today is Jennifer Fitzgerald, and after helping financial services organizations as a consultant at McKinsey, she and her colleague took the plunge to start Policy Genius, an online managed marketplace for insurance. And in this episode, we discuss the genesis of Policy Genius, how she systematically de-risked the idea early on, how she managed to build both sides of a marketplace without heavy reliance on paid acquisition, and much more. We also get into her advice on how folks looking to take, take the plunge themselves uh, can do so successfully, strategies for executing at a high level, recruiting early team members, and for leveling up yourself as your organization starts to scale. We covered a tremendous amount of ground. Uh, Jennifer was, was super, um, super sharp and, and tons of great advice, so I think you'll get a lot of value out of this. Uh, with that, let's go to Jennifer. All right, Jennifer, thank you so much for being here. I uh, really appreciate it. Why don't we uh, start with what Policy Genius is and how it works and kind of maybe what was um, the problem that you were trying to set out to solve uh, when you were not creating it? Sure. So Policy Genius is a managed marketplace for insurance. So we match consumers with the top insurance carriers in the country across all lines of insurance. So life insurance, home and auto, renters, disability, um, you name it, we've got it on the platform. And the problem that we were looking to solve was around distribution and specifically the disconnect between uh, the incumbent insurance carriers and consumers. So um, you may know that the predominant way that insurance is still distributed in this country is through brick and mortar agents. Okay. Um, and, you know, that's just not the, the channel that most consumers, especially younger consumers, are going to engage and is the issue about physically kind of going into an establishment or is it this idea of like an intermediary in general? What, 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 uh, the bigger issue is, is going into an establishment okay. and having to do the entire journey, you know, face to face and in person. Got it. My understanding is that you're, you're not necessarily a broker yourself. You're, you're introducing them to, uh, policies that might be a good fit for them based on kind of various criteria and, and that kind of thing. Is that, is that accurate? And you're trying, to, you're trying to be a little bit more objective, I guess, than maybe some of the other... All of that is accurate, except we are also a broker. Oh, you are. Okay. Right? So, okay. which, which is actually more advantageous for the consumer okay. um, because we don't sell off the leads. We don't hand you off. We own every step of the transaction and guide the consumer uh, along the way, um, which is important because most people, even if you're savvy in personal finance, um, odds are that you are going to be a first time, um, uh, consumer when it comes to life insurance or disability insurance or even homeowners insurance. So yeah. having that unbiased, uh, broker who has a full view of the market mm-hmm. is something that's advantageous as a consumer. Got it. And so it's a, it's a, even though it's a broker relationship, it's unbiased in the sense that you, you, you don't have a, prefer, you don't have preferred vendors that you all choose to kind of work with. You're still trying to kind of maintain transparency and, uh, uh, sort of a level of objectivity, maybe rather relative to some other types of, um, Correct. Sort of broker relationships folks might be familiar with. Got it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Very cool. We're an independent broker. I yep. see. Got it. So what, what was the, um, the, the process of kind of validating this. So you, you and your, your, I don't know if you have, yeah, you have a co-founder or co-founders. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. How, how did the idea sort of come to you initially? And then maybe what was the process of kind of going about validating it either with customers or, um, you know, with, with the, the various kind of, uh, insurance vendors as well. 
Um, how did you go about doing that? Were there any sort of intermediate steps to do, you know, whatever, you know, MVP or prototyping mm -hmm. or all that kind of stuff? What was that process like? Yep, we did all of the above. So the idea initially came to us uh, when my co-founder and I were both working uh, as consultants at McKinsey, and we were doing a lot of work with insurance companies. And we had a few light bulb moments that led to us discovering um, that this probably was a very big opportunity to tackle. One was, you know, we kept getting uh, tasked with uh, the very same engagement over and over again. So how do we as an insurance company find growth in a world that's increasingly younger and digital, right? So right. that's one. Two, um, there was a study that we published at McKinsey several years ago that found that the average age of an insurance agent is 59, plus looking at what were the options out there for consumers at the time, and this was five, six years ago, uh, wasn't great. You either had to go face-to-face -face or in person, or the predominant online models were just straight-up lead generators, which are a pretty bad experience for consumers. Right. Because um, you put in your contact info, and then you're just your contact info is sold um, multiple times over typically. Right. Um, so that was the idea. We um, spent several months thinking through hypotheses about how to tackle the problem. Uh, and during that time, we did several things to validate the idea. One was just talking to consumers, yeah. uh, started with friends and family, uh, expanded beyond that and tried to understand, you know, what their most recent journey was with respect to insurance. Where did they research? Who did they talk to? Um, did they eventually end up buying? If so, why, why not? If not, why did they bail? So mm -hmm. really got a comprehensive understanding of what the concern is. Um, and then after that, you know, we, uh, created an MVP and our MVPs at the time, cause neither my co-founder and I, uh, are, you know, technical, we don't know how to build software. Sure. Um, we did it in Excel and PowerPoint. So, That's awesome. um, went through a few iterations. Um, we were the quote unquote algorithms on the back end. When yep. somebody submitted information, we created the output on PowerPoint, um, and got consumer feedback that way. So we did it, um, as low fidelity and, uh, as hacky as you po could possibly think about. Um, and once we felt like we had a good handle on tone content, uh, journey, that's when we started building, um, you know, what became our initial website and consumer flows got online. It. Interesting. So um, it, it sounds like the tone, I know one of the things that you're sort of known for um, is, the, is the customer experience and tone and brand voice is a really big part of that. Um, it sounds like you did, you, you were thinking that way from the very beginning in terms of you weren't just thinking about, mo most people when they're doing an MVP, they're thinking about functionality for the most part. And you know, there's terms like minimum desirable product and things like that, I think are trying to get a little bit more where you, it sounds like you, you went. So I mean, I'm guessing that was a strategic decision, and it's very different than how were you were you you settled on a on a voice that's very different than I think what a lot of your what would be maybe considered your your competitive set uh, how they talk and how they sound and all that kind of stuff. Did that mm -hmm. emerge through the customer development process, or was that a hypothesis you had from the very beginning, and it was just a focus on tweaking you know what that what exactly that meant? That was a very intentional decision uh, on our part early in the day, right? So um, as we you know, talk to consumers, one of the big things that uh, comes across very quickly is trust, is information asymmetry, yeah. it's words like biased, it's you know, phrases like, I feel like I'm being sold a bill of goods. So right. um, 
arming people with information, trying to um, uh, improve the information symmetry on the part of like the insurance company and the consumer, getting them to feel comfortable and confident about taking the next step. Um, all of those things were important. And this is different. And this is, I think, something that people um, get wrong about insurance as they compare it to other financial services verticals like lending or credit cards. Mm -hmm. If you're a consumer and you're taking out a loan, you kind of don't care who the counterparty is because if the counterparty goes out of business, then great. You might not need to repay, right? right. Um, whereas the <laughs> equation is the opposite in insurance. You as a consumer are paying into a contract that you hope to never use. Yeah. But if you do, you better hope you made the right decision and that the counterparty is going to be there to honor its claims, right? Yeah. Um, so the trust part of that equation is critically important. So how you talk about it. Um, the tone that you use, the language that you use is all important to getting the consumer to go from step A to step B to step C and beyond along, and ultimately getting the, the insurance that they need. That makes sense. Along, along those same lines, I know one of the things that seems pretty unique is the, the, the point at which you start collecting customer information. And so like you were talking about some of the lead gen you know, types of sites out there. I, I would imagine that that was at least a conversation either with your internal team or maybe with investors or whatever around whatever, using whatever channels that you're using to kind of acquire customers, you're paying for clicks or whatever it is. Let's get their email as quickly as we can so that we can, you know, we have, the, we have the ability to, um, to try to nurture that relationship and that kind of thing. And so, you know, you, you kind of have taken a different approach there in terms of, you know, saying, no, we're not going to collect because of, I, I presume this trust component, we're not going to be like those other vendors. We're not going to collect that information until we absolutely need it. How did you arrive? Was that a theory from the very beginning, or did you kind of arrive at that more organically? And, and for folks that maybe were skeptical, either on your team or whatever, how did how did you kind of overcome maybe some of those objections around? Because it's a very, it's just a very different way of of, mm -hmm. kind of building a customer relationship, right? Yep, and we're unique in the market in that respect. Yeah. Uh, and it was an early hypothesis, right? So we looked at what the competition was doing, try to connect the dots with what consumers are saying that they wanted and what their behavior indicated that they truly wanted. Uh, and so from the very beginning, we said, um, you've got to show contact information as currency, right? So basically it's a transaction, yeah. uh, giving your email address or phone number. So you've got to show value before you earn the permission to ask for contact information. Yeah. Um, and we saw that, you, you know, you might lose some uh, top of the funnel if you don't collect their email or phone number earlier on. Mm -hmm. But the the prospects that you get through the funnel are going to be higher intent. Um, so we've uh, validated that through testing different conversion numbers, which are, you know, higher all the way through the end of the funnel than anybody else out there. Yeah. Um, and it allows us to, you know, stand behind the claim that we're on the side of the consumer. I guess there's still channels that you can use to try to nurture relationships through retargeting and things like that um, to they get what they need and then they leave. And because there's a behavior change component, right? Where it's like, mm -hmm. I don't necessarily remember, not, not through any, not because you did it, you did a great job. You gave them exactly what they wanted, but just it's, it's a habit hasn't necessarily been formed or, or, or the, the mental connection has not necessarily been made where they think immediately to kind of come back. Um, are there, right. are there mechanisms that you are able to leverage to kind of nurture a relationship in a more non-traditional way that doesn't rely on things like email or personal information gathering? Sure. I mean, there's ways to retarget even if you haven't collected 
um, email address or phone number. Uh, And there's also just our strategy of being at the forefront of every single channel where our consumers are. So Mm -hmm. um, a typical flow might be somebody uh, comes to us through a piece of content. They get life insurance quotes. They're not ready to pull the trigger because they want to do a bit more researching. Um, so they go back to Google and then they Google a question and guess what pops up? Uh, page one at the top is Mm -hmm. another piece of content that we've written. Right. Um, and so they read that, then they're still not ready. They have to talk to their spouse uh, and they come back to it and, you know, they hear an ad of ours on their favorite podcast or see us on the TV. So, yeah. um, it is a very considered purchase, uh, and very few consumers, well, depending on where they are in their journey, they're going to, um, either have multiple touches and yeah. um, multiple days before they finally get to the end of it. Yeah. Um, or they're, they come to you at the end of their journey and they're ready to convert on the same session. So, yeah. um, that's, that's underlaid our, our marketing and engagement strategy as well. Got it. Um, along those same lines, my, my understanding is that there were some pretty creative things that you were doing initially. You had a lot of emphasis around channels that maybe were a little more organic in nature, didn't necessarily scale, in some cases, even more like guerrilla marketing types of strategies. Like, what, what were some of the things that you did to get those first customers in the door? Because often where people, you know, they're like, how do I find my customer if I'm not relying on things like paid acquisition and things like that? Like, what were some of the things that you, that you found effective in your case? So we, it wasn't short-term effective, but it has paid long-term dividends, um, which was the investment in really good content marketing. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was uh, an investment and a decision we made strategically day one. Yeah. Um, but it takes a long time to see the fruits of that, right? Yeah. Uh, I think one of the earliest things that we did, and all credit in the world to my co-founder, who is a growth and marketing genius, yeah. as was we tapped into the personal finance and blogger community. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a pretty rich world out there of um, folks blogging about personal personal finance topics. Um, they, you know, individually might have a smaller audience, but what you tend to see is that they're a very highly engaged audience. Um, so we were the first insurance related company to go to them. Right. Um, and now, now it's sort of a tried and true channel, but we were the ones who went there first from the insurance perspective. So we went to personal finance bloggers, people blogging about their journey of paying down debt, or their journey of saving up so they could retire by the age of 40. Um, We went there one by one and built those relationships with those bloggers. And those were, we, those are where we had our initial customers. And then when we finally had a budget to start, you know, paid acquisition, we were building off the backs of that, you know, small, but engaged following there. Yeah. Very cool. So uh, changing gears just a little bit, it seems like it's, it's a bit of a um, kind of a marketplace type of business. And in order to, Kind of fulfill that value prop of, of we're going to get you the best policy for you based on you know your demographics, psychographics, whatever it is. Uh, you need to have a relatively good kind of supply of providers. Um, so was that a was that a challenge uh, early on when you were getting started, and were there some strategies that you found kind of on the biz dev side to make that more effective, or was it just hey no this is you know this is another channel for us where we're more than happy to kind of to, to throw our hat in the ring. How did, how did that process go? Yeah, it's definitely a challenge. The thing around insurance companies is they, not every customer is a good customer yeah. uh, and they, you know, open themselves up to um, potential challenges if they just work with anybody, right. Who's yeah. funneling customers their way. So um, we, it would, it's one of the reasons why we didn't start with property and casualty insurance. Um, it is nearly impossible to get, uh, the big players to work with you unless you have a track record. Um, so it's a little bit of a chicken and the egg problem. Yeah. And on the life insurance side, 
there are pre-established structures. So we worked with a bigger um, general agency who had the contracts. It makes it means that you take um, uh, lower fees up front, but it allows you to build a book of business, show that you can generate good risk and good customers for the carriers, and then you eventually move up where you're owning those relationships individually. And so, you know, what we did over the first few years was just built a very, very good um, you know, business uh, with life insurance. And then we were able to take that track record to the property and casualty carriers, mm-hmm. um, which we did uh, toward the end of last year, uh, and finally expanded horizontally into home and auto. So um, it is very difficult to get that, which means it's also a strategic moat for us. Yeah. Um, but it was something, you know, as a marketplace, you need liquidity on both sides. So yeah. it's something that we've had to had to problem solve over the years. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, you mentioned the uh, not every customer is a is a is a good customer. All kinds of trends around either predictive analytics or you know some of the behavioral targeting and those kinds of things that you can do. I mean, are there mm-hmm. is there is there a data component to the business that a little more nuanced than having having a, a you know, sort of a better form, which seems like that might be a little bit easier to you know to compete against. I mean, is there a, is there a is there a data moat on on, on that, that's allowing you to kind of give them higher quality leads than other vendors as well? Or how do you approach, how do you think about kind of the data side of things? So on the data side of things, um, we, it's not just about, um, you know, uh, your form. Uh, We've also got the raters and underwriting engines on the back end, right? So the whole point around life insurance, for example, and, and property and casualty as well is we underwrite you up front to make sure that we're matching you with the best possible carrier. The final underwriting approval um, rest with the carrier okay. on the back end, okay. but you know we improve the customer experience by matching you up front. Um, we are incredibly accurate as long as we get accurate uh, information from the uh, prospective customer, and because we're able to do that risk matching up front, uh, it's a better customer experience. The insurance company gets the customers that they want at the price um, you know that they've set. So again, it just optimizes market liquidity. And then what we can do, because we've been doing this for several years, you know, our underwriting engines get have gotten smarter and smarter, right? So we know that if a consumer looks like you with respect to age and health profile and whatever, whatever, we know that this carrier is going to come back as the most competitive. Yeah. Um, so that's something, again, that just uh, enhances the consumer experience and also make sure that the right customers are getting funneled to the right carriers. Right. You know, I, I I would imagine that this came up kind of early on, at least when you were talking, you know, when you were when you were pitching and maybe when you're raising or whatever it is. But the, there's this macro kind of argument around the role of, um, you know, kind of intermediaries and and what you know what role they play. And and I mean, it, it seems like on the you know yes, on the one hand, there's this there's margin that in theory is kind of getting that's factoring in that equation. But on the other hand. What you're able to provide people that know that that going direct would never be able to provide them is this this unbiased, you know, again, sort of view of things where people can kind of build, you know, have a have a trust relationship with you and 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 trust that you're gonna put, you know, you're gonna give them, you know, sort of the best option for their needs. I don't know if you get into conversations around kind of the role of intermediaries, sort of in general, like at a macro level, but it, to the degree that you do, like how do you how do you think about that strategically? I mean, obviously, I think you're you probably are on. Um, you're pro, <laughs> you're, you're for them. Mm. Um, but, uh, but how do you, how do you, uh, how do you think about that stuff? I, I think about it as we've got the be- best position in the market, right? So, um, and that's simply because one consumers 
trust and use managed marketplaces all the time, right? Whether you're finding a general contractor for your home or you are, um, you know, looking to sell your home. So managed marketplaces are nothing new. Um, The managed piece of it is key because you provide protections uh, for both the buyer and the seller and you optimize market liquidity that way. Mm -hmm. Also, if you think about the category, right, people don't know what a good insurance policy looks like. They have no idea if they're getting a good price. The only way that you know that is to see the market, right? Mm -hmm. If you're shopping for a pair of shoes, you have a, you have a ballpark sense of what you're willing to pay and what you should be paying. Right. Right. Um, same as if you're getting a hotel room or shopping for a flight, do you have any idea what you should be paying for a life, a 30 year term life insurance policy? Not a clue. No, (laughs) no. And would you go to one life insurance company and take the price that they gave you without shopping it around and comparing it? Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So, I mean, it's just, it's just the nature of the category. It, it seems like with your, uh, I know that, you know, life insurance companies in particular have started to kind of move upstream, you know, Northwestern Mutual and things like that, trying to get into things more, be more of a financial planner and kind of have a larger share of wallet and things like that. With your emphasis on kind of content um, and building trust with the customer relationship and things like that, it seems like there's a long-term opportunity there to potentially kind of advise me on other aspects of my life that maybe aren't necessarily insurance related. Is that, where do you kind of see the future of policies and this kind of going? You, that's absolutely something that we think about. I mean, we do it already with our content. All our content is not just around, you know, which, which are the best life insurance companies, because what we have found is our customers uh, are having big life events. So yeah. you don't just wake up one morning and say, I need, you know, homeowner's insurance. You <laughs> do that because you're buying a home, right. uh, or, um, you know, you are having a child and that's what triggers the need for life insurance. And we deliver a great experience on the insurance piece. And then our customers are asking us, great. I also have these seven other things on my financial to-do list I'm working through. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I trust you guys on probably the most complicated piece, which was insurance. Can you help me with these other things? So yeah. that is absolutely top of mind for us as we think about, you know, the future path with our, with our customers. Uh, and we're pretty excited about it. Yeah, definitely. So I, I teach a, I teach a class at Kellogg here in Chicago and many, many, many of my students are, they, they come from consulting. Um, at some point during uh, their two years there, they get bit by this bug um, and they see how um, exciting startup land could theoretically be. Uh, but they also, in a lot of cases, they have a tremendous amount of kind of fear about making that leap and leaving, you know, what's often a very kind of high salary position and, and kind of making that jump. To the degree that folks, I would imagine the folks ask you for, for advice on that kind of stuff, like what, what sorts of advice would you give folks who are, who are simil- in a similar position and are thinking about they have a great idea and they they want to make that jump from a relatively stable prestige-based sort of role inside of an organization to, to jumping into the abyss of startup land. <laughs> so, so many things to say. <laughs> so, um, first thing I would say is you should be afraid, right? Because this is, this is a hard thing. Uh, and even if you eventually get it to work, it never, it never gets easier. The nature of the challenge changes. So, um, you should have a certain amount of fear because it's a hard thing. Yeah. Um, the second thing I would say is, you know, make sure that you're excited enough about the idea to, um, slog at it for years and years if you need to, right? right? Um, you know, very rarely does somebody have an idea, flip it, makes easy money, and they're on to the next thing. Right. Um, the majority of founders either, um, you know, do a few year slog and it ends up going nowhere, or you know, slog and then it does take off, and then you're still working at it, right? Yep. Um, so that's the big piece of it. The other piece 
um, and I was guilty of this as well, is it looks so easy from the outside in. And you think that the hardest thing is coming up with the idea and the strategy. Right. Um, like that's literally not like it's the easiest thing in the world. Yeah. <laughs> the yeah. hardest thing yeah. is actually the execution. Yeah. How do you hire people? when you don't have a brand? Um, how do you know how to hire for functions that you've never done and couldn't do yourself? Right. Um, how do you get everybody excited day in and day out, day in and day out when you're just like, Oh, I'm so exhausted. So, um, you know, the whole culture eats strategy for breakfast. I like to execution eats the idea for breakfast every day. Um, and so the advice I'd have is go talk to somebody who's done it. Um, and you know, really, really get a sense of what it's like day in and day out. And, you know, I have a, a, a group of uh, similar stage CEOs and founders that I meet with once a month. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you the number one thing that we talk about, it's not around strategy or any of the sexy things. Yeah. It's, it's around people and execution. Yeah. You know, you've mentioned a couple, you know, several times kind of taking a very sort of hypothesis driven kind of approach to a lot of things and being very, very just systematic about how you were de-risking various kind of levers within the business. Are there any other strategies from an execution perspective that you have found to be kind of particularly effective um, that, that maybe are, are, are more broadly applicable than just an insurance context, but just ways that you have found to help your organization kind of execute at a higher level or move faster or uh, anything like that? Sure. I think, yeah, a few things. So one, de-risking uh, which you mentioned is huge. And that's everything from like your initial idea to, you know, even now when we think about building a new product or doing a new thing, we de-risk of it, de-risk it as much as possible up front. Um, Bezos talks about like reversible mistakes and and letting that govern how quickly you move. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that's a really good principle to follow and one that we try to follow internally Two is, um, understanding, like what's important at your specific stage early on, you want to have a product or service in the hands of customers as soon as possible. Right. And what you think is perfect or what's uh, launch ready might actually be completely wrong. (laughs) And you don't want to spin your wheels on absolutely the wrong thing. Uh, And then customers come back and say, nah, this is not a thing uh, that I need or would use or tell other people about. Yeah. Um, And I think, the other thing that helps us, and it's just a lens we've always had, yeah. is if you are building basically anything, you got to think about distribution, right? Whether you are your customer is a business, whether your customer is a consumer, like you always have to be thinking about, great, if this is the product, how am I going to get distribution? Yeah. Uh, and so many things that are great ideas and great products and great services die die on the hill of distribution. So never lose sight of that. It's the most critical thing um, that you always have to be thinking about. You also mentioned the people side of things kind of being critically important. And you talked about how, you you know, how, you, how do you get somebody to come in and maybe take a pay cut or do, do join this early stage thing that, that where the most likely outcome is failure and those kinds of things. Like mm-hmm. anything that you've learned there around, um, you know, either getting people on board early on or um, kind of casting a vision and kind of getting people kind of motivated to kind of want to uh, make the plunge with you. Mm-hmm. I think two things uh, were especially effective for us, uh, especially in the early days. One is just around authenticity, mm-hmm. right? So um, I think people are pretty good at sniffing out BS or seeing somebody who's just like a total hand waver. Yeah. Um, and so being authentic, 
uh, and, you know, honest about the challenges, honest about the things that you haven't solved for yet, while also painting a very compelling vision and, and telling an effective story is important, right? So I think people will conflate storytelling with hand-waving over the um, blind spots or challenges or things we haven't solved for yet. That's a part of the story, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the people that are going to set you up for success, especially in those early days, are people who are excited by the ambiguity the challenges, who want to build something from scratch. Not everybody is cut out for that or wants that. So you've got to be able to quickly ascertain whether that person is going to be motivated by that or not. And if not, move on and um, try to find the people who are uh, because they're out there. um, But it's your job to find them as quickly as possible uh, and be authentic and tell a compelling story. As you get bigger, it gets slightly easier, although it's never easy. You know, everybody needs and wants top talent. So, um, your strategy has to evolve, right. And you have to be on top of your competition, what the market looks like for these roles, um, and the skills that you need, right? Like, do you need specialists early on, or do you just need all around athletes? Right. Right. Um, and then that be mindful that that's going to change over time uh, as your company gets bigger. What about from a, from a personal management perspective? I know a lot of times the founder who is able to go from zero to one is not necessarily the founder that can, you know, help the thing scale. And it seems like you've, you know, you've managed to kind of stay on top of that and to help and to grow yourself, um, to, to, you know, kind of continue to be the right person throughout that journey. Anything that you've kind of learned around ways of leveling up, like as you, um, cause you're going to, you, you know, you're running so fast. Um, I would imagine that finding time for, you know, kind of sharpening your own saw or whatever it is, or finding mm-hmm. opportunities to level up is probably a challenge. Anything that you found there to kind of maintain your effectiveness or increase your effectiveness? Yep. So I think a few things. One is, um, the most effective thing you can do is just hire the best people around you. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and don't be afraid of hiring people who are smarter than you, have you know deeper uh, deeper skills than you in a certain function. That is exactly the job that you have as the CEO and founder. Yeah. Um, to always you know be solicitous of feedback, right? Listen to feedback from your board. Listen to feedback from your team. Uh, as we like to say internally in our feedback training, feedback is a gift, and you can either use the gift or put it on the shelf if you don't think it's relevant. But mm-hmm. um, you absolutely need to be mindful of feedback because. Um, that's going to be the best indicator of where you still need to develop as a leader. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the third piece that's been very helpful for me is just building a, a peer network and a peer group of people who are at the same stage or ideally a little bit ahead of you um, who can tell you these are the pitfalls. This is like how I had to make the transition. This is personally what I'm dealing with. Um, I think that's been hugely helpful for me, even mm-hmm. to just sanity check how I'm feeling about things and how I'm approaching things. 100%. Yeah, that's awesome. For folks that maybe want to learn more about Policy Genius or even, you know, kind of your career, where, where should I send folks? You can send them straight to our website, policygenius.com. Uh, it's got everything about the company, a little bit of our founding story, um, and uh, it's a great place to start. Very cool. Well, thank you so much, Jennifer, for doing this. Really appreciate it. This was fascinating. Awesome. Thanks for having me on. My guest today was Jennifer Fitzgerald. For more information on how to disrupt your own organization, visit us at www.digintense.com. And if you love this episode, we'd love a review on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever platform you choose. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time.